Bible to Hosea chapter 12. Hosea in the Old Testament, it's after Daniel and it is before Joel. Hosea chapter 12. If you get to the Micah, Nahum, Amoses, those are too far. Back up just a little bit to Hosea. Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets. So we know God speaks, and that everybody understands that, that he had the mouthpiece, especially in Old Testament times where he spoke through the prophets. He says, I have multiplied vision. God does speak to people in visions. You've heard Pastor and Tiff both have stories of the Lord giving them a certain vision about what may have gone on in somebody's life. They went and ministered to them. And God can give us visions. That doesn't mean every time we go to bed, and everything that we dream is come directly from God. Pink elephants rolling down the hill backwards or driving a car is not necessarily from God. But He does give people at times visions. He uses similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. And that word similitude has a root word, the word similar is in there, and what that means is, there are stories in the Old Testament throughout the entire Bible where God paints a picture. There are events of thousands of years ago, and yet it still applies to things today or in Jesus' time. It has a similar picture to it. God uses these kind of things. And remember, he, he has to speak to people in so many different languages. God just paints pictures. And we're going to look at one of those tonight. Go to Genesis chapter 22. There are examples of these similitudes. Of, you, you may think when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they went through the Red Sea, when God parted the Red Sea. They traveled through that enormous wall of water on each side of them. And what happened when they got to the other side? Egyptians had chased behind them, and God allowed that water to come, and it buried them. And in effect, it cleansed the children of Israel. It cleansed them from their past. They had been in Egypt for 400 years. And the people that died in that flood when the water came back over them, those were their tormentors. Those were the people that had enslaved them. In the New Testament, in 2 Peter and in Corinthians, it both mentions that that event is a picture of baptism. They could look back and see that their old life had passed away. Those people that were had enslaved them were never going to come back to them. They had no worries that that past was going to come back on them. That's a picture of baptism. Now when you and I, as an adult, when we get baptized, it's simply, uh, the Bible teaches, it's an outward expression of what's going on in the inside of us. That washing of water, we all know, can't wash away sin, can it? That takes the blood of Christ. The baptism is just an outward expression. Everybody can see the, what's the word, can see the picture, the, the similitude. It's a similar picture that you're leaving your past behind you in that water. Well, that's a picture, that's a similitude of baptism. Here in Genesis 22, if you grew up in church, if you went to Sunday school or had adult Bible studies, you're, you're probably very familiar with this story. It's the picture, the story, of Abraham taking his son Isaac 
to a place that God instructed him. And there he is going to sacrifice him. And we can see right away that this, this thing has a certain picture that applies to New Testament times. The picture of a father sacrificing his son. Of course, the son is innocent. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's start at the beginning. Genesis 22, verse 1. It came to pass after these things, that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. First thing that jumps out at me in verse 2, he said, Take now thy son, thine only son. And the first thing that jumps into our mind, if we're comparing this to another picture that we know about in the New Testament, what does, G- what does God say about Jesus? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is that same picture, but wait a minute here. There's something a little bit different here. Abraham had, he not would have in the future, at this moment in time, he had another son. His name, Ishmael. Ishmael was 13 when Isaac was born, but why? Why would the Holy Spirit, God's not a liar, why would the Holy Spirit write, Abraham, take your only son, whom thou lovest. doesn't mean that he didn't love Ishmael. He did. He loved Ishmael. But there is something that is being communicated through this by calling Isaac the only son. God's intention is always to focus his attention, uh, the, the reader's attention, the attention of the world, down through a particular lineage because from the beginning... God had made a promise that that lineage would bring forth the only, the the one person that the whole world needed. Now, you can look at this and you can think, my goodness, God, he, he hates Ishmael. He doesn't hate Ishmael. See, I'm a German. And you know what? I don't find the word German in the Bible. I only find my great, 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 far, far distant ancestors mentioned kind of halfway, maybe once. Does that mean I should get mad at God and think, well, he, didn't, he doesn't like my people? Of course not. That's not the point of this. He's pointing out Isaac because the redemption that mankind has to accept is going to come through Isaac. This is why when Abraham does have the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, we don't know that much about Ishmael, do we? When Isaac is married, has kids, he has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. How much do we know about Esau? Esau was hairy, I think it says. He may have had red hair. We don't know much more than that. Doesn't mean God didn't like Ishmael or Esau. What does it mean? It means the reader needs to know about, there was something special about Jesus who one day would come through this lineage. Let's, let's, let's take a step back and look at this even further. Your Bible starts with Adam and In 12 chapters, it goes through 2,000 years of human history, from Adam to Abraham. 2,000 years, and it took only 11 chapters to get there. That means the Bible is, God, when he wrote it, he's moving quick. 
tells you about Adam. One of the kids killed another one. We keep moving. There's Noah. There's a flood. And pretty soon you're already to Abraham. And what happens when you get to chapter 12? God shifts down into low gear. He hits the brakes. And now, the next 2,000 years, go from Genesis 12 to Matthew chapter 1. God took a lot of time to describe to us, to paint a picture, to let us know all about one guy and his lineage, Abraham. It's amazing, if you really stop and think about that. 2,000 years in the first 11 chapters, the next 2,000 years take, I should have done my homework and shown you how many, I don't know, I didn't count them, Genesis 12 through the end of Malachi. God slows down, he wants the, 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 the picture on this kid, Abraham, Take your son, thine only son Isaac, and look at this, whom thou lovest. This is the first time in your entire Bible that the word love appears. Scholars, in, if you do a lot of reading, they have this thing called the, what is it, the, the law of first mention, that the first time something appears, it's the most important. If God sometimes names a, a bunch of different countries or a def, bunch of different people, it's usually the first person that he mentions that he's focusing on. And here, the very first time God is love, and the first time he uses the word in his Bible, love, what story is he talking about? Picture of a man, an elderly man, taking his beloved son and doing what? Sacrificing him. That's the first time the Bible mentions the word love. Now, he tells Abraham... You go into the land of Moriah, a very special place. When Jen and I were there in June, you, it, one thing impressed upon me is how small all these, what's the word, the, the geographical places are. Mount, uh, the Moriah area, you may use the phrase, it's a series of small mountains. But that whole uh, city of David, the old temple area, the, the old city of Jerusalem, we're talking 20 acres. Small Places. And God went out of his way. He did not tell Abraham, you pick a place, you can do it in your backyard. He said, I want you to do this. Sacrifice your son in a special place. Go to Second Chronicles. Keep finger here. We'll be here in Genesis 22 all three hours. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter 3. And at this time, we have Solomon is going to build the temple. If you remember, David had done all these wonderful exploits, but God didn't let him build the temple. He wanted to. But God told him, you've been a man of war. You've done what I've told you, but your hands are full of blood. You're not going to build the temple for me. He did get the supplies. When his son came along, it's time now for Solomon to build it. Look at verse 1. 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. This is the place where the, the nation of Israel would, in their way, get close to God through animal sacrifice for these however many years. God commanded them to do it, and he did it in a place, the place, the same place where what took place? Abraham, all those years before, took Isaac up to sacrifice And remember, God chose that place. This is where God wanted it. 
you then go keep going in your Bible, and when you get to Jesus' time, that Mount Moriah, awfully darn close where that cross gets stuck in the ground, and Jesus is up there paying the penalty for sin for the last time. Mount Moriah. I don't know why God chose that spot. We do know this. He did choose this spot, Mount Moriah, for Abraham taking Isaac there, Solomon building the temple, and Jesus would be crucified in the same place. Verse 3, Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verse 3. After telling Abraham that this promised kid, the one he'd been waiting for, finally arrives, and now he tells him, go sacrifice him. I'll bet the next verse, Abraham is either kicking and screaming, he's negotiating with God. Are you kidding? I'm supposed to sacrifice this? No way. I know what would have been recorded here had God told me to sacrifice my son. Look at what's recorded in verse 3. And Abraham rose up early. Unbelievable sentence here. He is told to go sacrifice his son, and the next sentence is, the alarm clock goes off an hour early. and Abraham is going to do exactly what God tells him. Now, you could stop four weeks right there. Right there, the gap between verse 2 and verse 3 and preach on faith because Abraham had it. Now, we learn something in the New Testament. If you stay with God long enough and you get into Romans chapter 4, what does it say about Abraham's mindset on this morning? It tells us, that Abraham trusted God so much that he knows he has heard from him. He knows that God has promised me this Isaac. Remember, he was a hundred, Abraham was, when Isaac was born. He knows it's a miracle that it's even here. And it didn't just, this miracle didn't just appear out of nowhere. God had told him it's coming. So he's looking, he's waiting for it. They even tried on their own. Abraham with Sarah's handmaid, that's how Ishmael was born. He knows this kid's a miracle. And Abraham has learned something over the previous 25 years with God. Romans chapter 4 tells us that in Abraham's mind he knew God has promised me that Isaac's going to have kids and that his lineage is going to be filled with a nation and that someday even the Messiah is coming through here. So I know in Abraham's mind, Abraham says, I know that God has to raise this kid from the dead. That's what Romans chapter 4 tells us that Abraham knew in his heart of hearts that if I, even if I go through with this and I do what God tells me, he's going to have to raise him from the dead. And Abraham, it says, counted in his heart that Isaac was resurrected from the dead. Think of that. In effect, he had already received him from the dead. Abraham was 99. Sarah was 90 when he was born. He'd already received him from the dead once. It still takes some faith. We're going to put a knife to him? No chance, Willis. He'll never get me there. Abraham had faith. Abraham rose up in the morning. He saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son cleaved the wood for the burnt offering, rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. That's obedience. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. I want you to remember that sentence. Three days, he lifts up his eyes, and he looks, and he sees the place. We'll come back to that. Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, 
And I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. So he leaves the servants behind. He and Isaac are going to go up the mountain. And you can see in his speech here, he said, we are coming back. He knows he's going to resurrect him. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. They went, both of them, together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father. He's starting to figure something out here. Dad, we've got wood. You've got a knife in your hand. You've got something for fire. But the most important part of this sacrifice system, you don't have a live animal, an innocent animal to sacrifice. And Abraham says in verse 8, Son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Now, in verse 8, in verse 8, we know how this story ends. We know that when they get up there, Abraham is going, he's going to do it. Good Lord, he's actually going to do it. And yet, God calls down an angel, tells Abraham, almost grabs him by the hand, don't do it. I know that you're going to follow me. And Abraham then turns, and what does he see? He sees a ram. He sees what, we, what Abraham said here, that God will provide himself. God's going to provide something up there for us. And that's one way to read that. And it is a correct way to read that. Because God paints pictures with similitudes, I think there's something, if we scratch just a little bit below what is written there, God will provide himself. And the way to read that is insert or at least mentally think there is one little word, as. God will provide himself as a sacrifice. (laughs) Right now, you think, John, you're taking that a little too far. And there's a chance. Maybe. Because it does not say he will provide himself as a lamb. But whenever you just stay with God's word, he may answer the question in that verse. He may answer it the next chapter. Sometimes he might wait about 1,338 pages later and he will shed light on what he's talking about. Keep a finger here. Go to John chapter 8. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. Jesus is having a heated discussion with the Pharisees. They're calling each other names. They are. Jesus is telling them, you're children of the devil. He's telling them that you are, in effect, illegitimate. And they, they fire back at him, well, listen, we're, we're children of Abraham. Don't you be calling us. We know where we came from. And they probably told him something about, you came from Mary, and we don't even know who your father, Joseph, says he is, but these kind of things. They're, it's a heated discussion. And when they tell Jesus, we have Abraham as our father, Jesus says this to them, John chapter 8, verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And look at this. And he saw it and was glad. Let's stop here and think a minute. I I don't think those Pharisees, I think it went right over their head. I don't think they even know what Jesus might have been saying here. He said, A positive declaration that what did Abraham physically do? He saw what? 
He saw my day. That means somehow, whether it was a vision, whether God showed him as, what I, when I said remember that verse in Genesis, where Abraham, they, he traveled three days, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place where God had told him where he's supposed to sacrifice Isaac. That word saw, it is used in other places for seeing a vision. I mean, when you see a vision, you're, you may not see it with your natural eyes, but you see it with the mind's eye. The picture is painted for you inside there, maybe in a dream, maybe in a vision. We use the same verbs, seeing a vision. Jesus says here, Abraham saw my day in some way. God showed Abraham that one day he, God the Father, would be sacrificing his own son up on that very mountain. First time you come across this, you, you kind of scratch the beard and you think, I'm not sure about that. You're talking 2,000 years between Abraham and the time of Jesus. Hopefully, this entire similitude picture helps us to grab onto this. I don't know how else to read Jesus' words there. It even says that when Abraham saw it, what did he do? He rejoiced. Abraham knew he was playing out some part of prophecy that Man, what I'm doing here, God is painting, the, whether he knew he was painting a picture, God was going to perform this sacrifice for the world. He was doing it because God had told him he's being obedient. And yet, somehow he understands, he's rejoicing in the thought that this is pretty cool. God the Father is going to sacrifice his own son. Because that's what Jesus' quote, day is. Now, we're starting to get into something here. This whole picture, go back to Genesis 22. <clears throat> this whole picture is God the Father is seen in this story as the doting father who has one son. This son, Jesus, is seen in this Isaac. Jesus is the one who is going to take this role of Isaac. He's, Isaac was going to be offered because in his heart Abraham was willing to do it. Jesus physically would go through the sacrifice. But as we peel back some things in Genesis 22 here, keep in mind what we're looking at. We're looking at a picture of in Jesus' day of him being sacrificed on Mount Moriah. For 2,000 years it had already happened in a picture. A doting father, aged, took his only beloved son, took him to the same place that Abraham took Isaac. Jesus would end up there. And he was offered as a sacrifice. Genesis 22. Let's look at verse 12 is where the angel calls out and says, Don't do it. Abraham, in verse 13, lifts up his eyes. He sees the ram caught by his horn. So he goes and he grabs him and he prepares him. He sacrifices that ram. And Abraham, in verse 14, called the name of that place, Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. What's the it there? What would the world see in the mount of the Lord? <clears throat> see, I think this is evidence that John 8.56 means Abraham saw Jesus being sacrificed. It says right here, Abraham named this place. 
God provides. Because why? In the mount of the Lord, it shall be. That's future. It's going to be seen right here. Pretty remarkable. God showed Abraham a lot of things. Remember, Abraham was walking with the Lord and they were getting ready in the, in the coming chapter. Sodom and Gomorrah is going to get destroyed. And God tells one of the angels, shall we tell Abraham this thing that we do? Seeing he is a friend of God, let's tell him. So he tells him, we're going to go down and we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, if there were 50 righteous, would you do it? If there's 40, 30, 20, he works his way down. He negotiates with God. Abraham, God's friend, God tells him things that are to come. I'm going to stretch this a little bit. Think in the New Testament. Who is the friend? Who is the beloved of Jesus? There was one of the disciples that we know that it says Jesus loved him. Apostle John. What did John write? The book of Revelation. God showed his beloved what was to come at the end times. And John lays it out. He saw this, all of it, in a vision. Not that important. It's just a picture of the things that happen in the Old Testament. They're the same things that happen in the... God is so consistent in His Word. and Even in this picture. Okay. We need anything else out of that. Abraham, he lifts up, he saw... All the... Okay. <clears throat> We're down at verse 19 now. He has offered Isaac. And verse 19 says, So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now this is interesting. Remember, who wrote the Bible? The hand of man, but it was the Holy Spirit that was grabbing the shoulder, grabbing the elbow, and telling them they were inspired, they were writing by his direction, the Bible says. So, as we read this, the Holy Spirit wrote this. And as we, as we pointed out, he wrote in similitudes to paint pictures. Verse 19 says, Abraham walked down the hill back to those young men. I thought Abraham said, me and the lad would come back. Remember that? Now, you and I, we read this, and we are 100% correct in our thinking. Abraham was walking right along, excuse me, Isaac was walking right there with his father, down the hill, to the young men. They're both, they're both going back. And yet, the Holy Spirit in writing this, who does he leave out? He paints the picture that once the son is offered, what happens to him? Disappears. He's gone from the scene. We'll write about him. We'll talk about his principles. Think to Jesus' time. After he is offered as a sacrifice for sin, he is resurrected and he goes to heaven. He will disappear from the scene. In this verse, it's just it's interesting to me that we know Abraham, Isaac is walking there with him. Of course he is. They both go back to Beersheba. But the Holy Spirit in writing this edits out his name and the focus is off the sun. Won't see him for a while. We're going to be introduced to somebody else. What did Jesus say when he left, when he would leave? When I leave, I will send the servant, the Holy Spirit. 
I'll, I'll get to that in a second. We need to stop for a second. Go to the next chapter in your Bible, chapter 23. <clears throat> after the Son is offered. After the Son is offered. Do you have a heading in your Bible? What is chapter 23 about? Good, got good Bibles out there. The Bible says Sarah dies. Now who is Sarah? Sarah is, in this picture, the wife of Abraham. And remember what we're doing. We're painting a picture. If Abraham is a picture of God, who is married to God? The Father. Who is married to God the Father? In Hosea, the book we started with, it's a picture. Hosea is a prophet. God says to him, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Because Israel is just like that. He uses the word whoredom all the time in Hosea because that's what Israel's like. They will not stay faithful to me. Who is God married to? The nation of Israel. As soon as the son dies, excuse me, as soon as the son is offered as a sacrifice, who dies? In Genesis his wife dies. As soon as Jesus is offered as a sacrifice, it's not very long after. 70 AD, the Romans surround that city. They slaughter them. And the nation of Israel is sent where? They can't even find them. Because as a nation, they don't exist. They're in places like Russia and China, Europe and Africa. As soon as Columbus gets there, they're going to go over to the Americas. They're scattered throughout the entire globe. They don't exist as a nation. It's gone. When the son is sacrificed in your Bible, the next chapter, his wife dies. In your Bible, when Jesus is offered as a sacrifice, his wife is dispersed. She's disappeared. And in effect, the nation dies. Sarah, in this, Abraham weeps over her. He mourns for her. Find that in your Bible where God mourns over Israel, weeps over her. Remember Jesus going into Jerusalem the last time and he weeps over the city because they reject him? Reject. He weeps over the death of his wife. Now, in Genesis 22, in this picture, the first time we see it painted, once Isaac is offered, the Holy Spirit doesn't even include him as walking down the mountain with the father Abraham. When's the next time we see him? This is, the Bible is so, so amazing. When's the next time we see him in our word? Chapter 24. He is not mentioned in all of chapter 23. And Isaac has not even mentioned the first half by name. First chapter, first half of chapter 24. But what is chapter 24 about? What's your heading there? Isaac gets a bride. Now, remember, if we draw lines, connect, John. If Abraham is a picture of God, if Isaac is a picture of Jesus, and if Isaac goes to get a bride, the next thing that happens, or the picture is painted in our Bible, who is the bride of the son. You see, we already found out that Israel, the nation of Israel, is married to the father. 
Who is the bride of Christ? Get your hand up. That's right. That's us. We're the church. And there's good news here. When this bride shows up in this chapter, she is gorgeous. Christian people, that's how God looks at us. We are fair. We are the fairest in all the land. That's the only thing Abraham would get for Isaac was the best. Here's the deal. Who goes and gets the bride? Start reading Genesis chapter 24. Abraham was old. Chapter 24, verse 1. He was old, well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had. Now, we know who this person is. We really do. If you go back to Genesis 15, verse 2, his name is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham is out complaining to God one day. He said, you made me this promise. I'm not seeing this son. Not only do I not have a son, the only thing I've got is this Eliezer of Damascus, and he's in charge of my whole house. What does this verse say? His eldest servant, who was, he had put in charge of everything, it is this person that does what? Come here, come here. You go back and you go get a bride for my Son, this is the picture of the Holy Spirit. This servant who is never mentioned by name. Why? Genesis 24 is one of the longest chapters in your whole Bible. There's 66, 67 verses. The servant is in every one of them. He's never mentioned by name. What did Jesus say? Keep a finger here. We, let's go read this. This is good enough. We should read it. Go to John chapter 16. The Gospel of John <clears throat> chapter 16. And look at verse 13. Jesus is getting ready to describe somebody special. John 16, 13, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, so the Holy Spirit is coming, he will guide you into all truth. He's a guide. That servant, to go find a bride for Isaac, he's a guide. This says, For he shall not speak of himself. The Holy Spirit does not have a first name, proper name. That servant in Genesis chapter 24, even though we know it's Eliezer, the Holy Spirit edits his name out to paint the picture of the Holy Spirit in New Testament times. Because like Jesus says, he doesn't speak about himself. He's humble. He's completely fine with not being the center of attention. We can't even see him. People have seen God. People have seen Jesus. You do not see the Holy Spirit. He's invisible he does not even speak of himself. Jesus said he will show you things to come. And if you go back to John chapter 15, go back one chapter, John 15, verse 26. When the Comforter is come, whom I'll send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of who? When the Spirit goes to get a bride for Christ, Who's he speaking of? Not talking about himself. 
he tells Rebekah about Isaac. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus said right here, he said he won't speak about himself. He's going to tell you everything about me, the Son. Now the Holy Spirit is involved anytime somebody gets saved. We know that? Everybody's okay with that? The Holy Spirit is the one who helps the heart feel conviction, understand that I think I need the blood of this Savior that was shed for me. That's the realization. There's a meeting that goes on between the Spirit introducing the bride to who? The Son. It's a picture. Let's go back to Genesis 22. You'll see it. There's a picture being painted where the Spirit, who in this image is the servant, this Eliezer, Abraham's most trusted servant. And he is sent to go find a bride. Let's look at Genesis 24, verse 5. The servant said unto him, unto Abraham, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Must I needs bring thy son again into the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said, Don't you dare. Do not take him back there. The Lord God of heaven, in verse 7, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, which spake unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee. Thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. Verse 10. The servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed. For all the goods of his master were in his hand. He arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. Here's the picture. Abraham tells this servant, you go find me a bride for my special son. It's somebody that they have a choice in this. We'll see later. He, the servant says, what if she doesn't want to come back? Did Abraham said, arrest her, put a chain on her and drag her back here? No. The picture is whoever accepts the son does so willingly. This is not Islam. Whoever accepts the Son, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. The Holy Spirit does not force anyone to accept his, the Son to be a bride unless they want. It's completely voluntary. This is a choice. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. It's up to that person. And Here is the picture. The Spirit takes ten camels and starts out into the sand. The Spirit. Now, if if the servant has ten camels, you ever think in your New Testament here, how many gifts of the Spirit, because that's what the camels are for, they're loaded down with gold, with jewels, with silver. To do what? Purchase that bride. How many gifts of the Spirit? I don't know. <laughs> the Bible in four different places, New Testament, it lists. it has different lists. There's one of them that has nine, one has seven, one has four, and I think they overlap, and I think if we overlapped and we found... There should be ten gifts of the Spirit. If not, we'll get God back here and rewrite this sucker, but there should be ten gifts, I don't know. He's taken ten camels. And off he heads into the sand. Now, in verse 14, he gets outside the city and he starts to pray. The servant, he is praying. He wants to do what his master desires. And he says, Lord, please, just let the first one, let's make this easy. The first one, let her be gorgeous, let her be beautiful, 
Let her be this perfect virgin and let her be the one that Isaac would want. The Bible says before, in verse 15, before he had done speaking. The New Testament tells us that our Father knows the things that we have need of before we even ask. What a picture. This guy has traveled and he knows that his, his, his master Abraham needs this special son to have a bride because what's been promised? Kids. and Special kids. He wants a special bride and he is in charge. Him. He has been put in charge of everything that Abraham has. Has these ten camels loaded and out he goes. How would you like to come back with nothing but ten camels? Wouldn't be good. He's praying, and before he's done praying, it says, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. So Rebekah is who? She is the offspring of Abraham's brother who had another wife. Now wait a minute. How could we define that woman? Is she Jewish? She is not. This bride is a Gentile bride. Is that not the picture? Are we stretching that too far? The son is not going to marry a Jewish bride. He is marrying a Gentile. And what does the New Testament teach us? That when the Jewish nation rejected Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah, God turned and he said, Disciples, you get out into the Gentile world and you go preach to them and bring in a harvest. Paul tells us that until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, this is going to be taking place. Whatever that number is, when God's got his number of Gentiles be brought in, look out. That bride is then going to be prepared to go meet the son. Let's keep your finger here in Genesis. 2 Corinthians. We need to see how the Bible describes the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians 11, verse 2. Paul is talking about something different, but he does include some language here that will help us. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband. Paul's talking to his converts, the people of his churches. And he says, I have espoused you to, look at the language, a husband, that I may present you as what? The church is always, the Christian church in, in the Bible is always presented as the image of a chaste virgin. This is why in Revelation 12 that we did a few weeks ago, and had the, the woman clothed with the sun and she's pregnant, that's why that can't be the church. Church is not pregnant in the Bible. Never. She's a chaste virgin. So now, Genesis 24, when Rebecca comes out, how does the Bible describe her? Genesis 24, verse 16, the damsel was very fair to look upon. A virgin, neither had any man known her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. Look at the picture there. She's a Gentile. That's what Paul was preaching to. Paul was preaching to Gentiles in Corinthians. The Gentile bride of Christ. 
And it does get confusing for some people because God does use the phrase bride when he talks about Israel for himself. That's for the father. For the son, it's a Gentile bride. This is where you get grafted into the family. These two families do come together. Rebecca has this water pitcher. And this imagery now is all about two things. We have this servant that went out to a well, and who did he meet? He met Rebecca. The servant and Rebecca. And what are they doing? They are dipping, they're getting water for the camels that Abraham sent with the servant. And she came out with a pitcher. She's obviously going to take water back to her household. Rebecca starts scooping water to feed these ten camels of the servant. And that's how he knows. He knows, yes, this is the one. She's even getting water for me. She's wonderful. She's even a hard worker. The servant and Rebecca at a well getting water. Go to Revelation 22. Keep a finger there. Revelation 22. The last of your Bible. This is the last picture it paints. Revelation chapter 22, and look at verse 17. It says, The Spirit and the Bride. There's two personas mentioned here. The Spirit and the Bride. And in our story, it's a picture of the servant Eliezer and Rebekah having met out at the well, and they're watering. Verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now, in Revelation, what has happened is that river of life has reappeared. And people come and they dip from the river of life in this new Jerusalem. Look at the picture the Bible paints. Here at the end of times, the spirit and the bride are talking about water. Thirsty people, giving them everlasting water. As Jesus said, if you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. And back in Genesis, we have this picture of the servant out at the well, meeting Rebecca and their watering camels. Holy Spirit. Bride. It's consistent throughout our whole Bible. Okay. Genesis 24. Look at, let's go down to verse 50. Um, we're going to restart reading there at verse 53. And what has happened is Rebecca and that servant went into town to meet Rebecca's parents. She obviously has to go tell dad and the brothers, I'm going, I'm leaving. Uh, that guy that left here all those years ago, Abraham, he has a miracle son, and I'm going to go be his bride. So that servant and the ten camels and Rebecca march into town. When they get to dad's house, the servant recounts the story. And now he, he's painting the picture of how this all came about. And in verse 52, it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshiped the Lord because they said she could go. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver, jewels of gold and raiment, and gave them to Rebekah. And he gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. This is what we mentioned. 
In Old Testament times, all those ancient cultures, you purchased, and as Pastor even tells us, when he visits Africa, they still do this. You purchase your bride. He is giving these the gold, silver, the precious jewels, and the bride is receiving. The Bible tells us that the Son, in, in, in this example, that the Son, Jesus, He purchased us with His blood. That the sacrifice of paying for sin on the cross, and that that paid for our redemption, it paid for our health, it paid for, as the Bible would say, a, a regeneration where He would give back to us the years that the locust has eaten. He bought us. The Bible, New Testament even says we're not our own. Remember that language? We've been bought with a price. It's always a picture of marriage. Ancient cultures, there was a huge exchange of money. That's why it was so interesting when Pastor came back last year and described that wedding purchase that he went to. How neat was that? They still do this, just like it over in Africa. It is kind of a neat way to do things. Thank goodness I didn't have to come up with more than about 24 bucks for a marriage license. He pays for, now look at verse 57. They said, we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. So they're going to ask Rebecca, do you really want to go? The father and the brothers are saying, Rebecca, we've given our consent. They've paid for you. They've given us all these precious things, but it's up to you. And in verse 58, they called Rebecca and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. Every Christian has to make that decision. Will you accept Christ? And maybe we ought to paint it in these words. When a person becomes a Christian, it is similar. This is the picture God paints. You're marrying Christ. That's the most intimate relationship possible. Furthermore, you don't back out of it easily. He paid for you, and if you... The Bible says when you name the name of Christ, that means you tell other people, I'm His... You don't go dancing with other people at parties. If you are bought by Him, and you have that ring, His ring, on your finger, one reason guys like to buy that huge diamond, if they can afford it, everybody knows. It's special. It's not like other ones. It identifies my wife. When people get saved, they should know, they should come to understand that this is not something lightly to be entered into. We are entering a covenant with the Lord. Now think of that covenant in these terms. Everything that Abraham, through his servant, sent with to, to go get Rebekah, she received. Who's on the, the pretty good end of that? When Jesus purchases us, what do we have to give him in return? You almost, there's almost nothing that we give him other than our loyalty, our faith. He does not ask us to come into this with a million dollar check. He is the one purchasing us. And there should, that should engender some loyalty to him. That when we preach salvation to people, this kind of story would be pretty good if it was already in their minds. It's taken us two and a half hours to get to this point. But to get somebody saved, we should probably paint it in this picture. This isn't something you're going to put on as a coat and you're going to take off when you get home. This Jesus you're accepting, this is the most important decision of your life. 
You'll never come across another decision like this. And you don't back out of it easy. You choose to go with him, it's legally binding. See, there's some good parts to that. What if I'm in trouble now and I'm the bride of Christ? Who can I call on? Who can I legally ask for assistance? I get his credit card sometimes. That's right. I get his name throughout town. I carry his name. That's one reason why Christian marriages started that way. Although that, in my opinion, unfortunately that's disappearing where the wife doesn't take the name of the husband. The reason the name is taken, it's for her benefit. She is to be identified with all the wonderful things associated with his name. When we take the high title of Christian, we are not just representing him, but we, we can call him up. We let him know what we need. That relationship exists. Now after this, you know, you know the story. Rebecca says, of course I'm going. And they start marching back. Look at verse 60. All those people, they blessed Rebecca and said unto her, Thou art our sister. Be thou the mother of thousands and of millions. Wait a minute. If she represents the bride, us, the church, maybe there's a, maybe that's the fullness of the Gentiles right there. The thousands of millions of us that are represented by Rebecca. That's coming in to be the bride of Christ. Verse 61. Rebecca arose, her damsels, they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant, the Holy Spirit, took Rebecca and went his way. And Isaac came from the way. Verse 62 is the first time we see Isaac. Once he was offered up on that Mount Moriah, Isaac disappeared. Only when the bride has said, I want him. Only when the bride has put the ring in her finger, the earring in her ear, to be identified with the son. Now, something's going to take place. Marriage. Verse 61, they rode upon the camels. Uh, Verse 62, Isaac came from the way of the well, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to to meditate in the field at the eventide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. I love the way Pastor always preaches that part. He says, Too many women in today's culture aren't quite like that. They're taking things off. And Rebecca, she is covering up. She's a good bride. She's that chaste virgin that is pictured in the New Testament. She's going to present herself to Isaac as somebody special that nobody's ever touched. And when Jesus comes back for his bride, who's he going to meet? He's not going to meet with people who have been dancing in the world. That picture is painted here. When the son meets his bride, she covers herself. Jesus even gave a parable about this, the ten virgins. There were five that were ready and five that weren't. He gave another parable about a wedding feast. People that were invited come in off the streets. 
And some of them didn't have wedding garments. And they were asked to leave. Here, when Abraham sent that, those things with the camel, they had the precious jewels, the gold and silver. And what else did he give Rebekah to wear? A garment. Raiment, it says. She was wearing something special. And if you read Revelation, it always mentions white linen robes for the saints. And white linen, it's what the priests wore in the Old Testament. It's a picture of purity, cleanliness, holiness. The bride is always pictured as, and this is why in Christian cultures, the bride wears that white dress. It's a biblical visual of purity, somebody that's kept themselves. This is very interesting. Look at verse 66. The servant told Isaac everything that he had done. And Isaac brought her where? Into his mother, Sarah's tent. Remember who Sarah, the picture of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the wife of God the Father? Where is this bride going to be taken? May very well be Israel. The mother's tent. The Holy Spirit took him to meet the son. The son took this bride into her, his mother's tent. The Bible talks in Revelation about that in Jerusalem when Jesus is ruling there and reigning and we're with him, that there's no need for the sun, no need for the moon because he's the light of the world. and We go in and out. If you've never been to Jerusalem, you very, 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 very likely we're going to get there. And it will be with Jesus' time. The Bible is the most amazing book on earth. This picture was painted 2,000 years before Jesus was ever here. Think of that. Think of the different cultures that disappeared from the planet. Languages that no longer exist. You and I are now 2,000 years on the other side of Jesus. That means 4,000 years from when this story took place. And the imagery, the pictures, are still ringing true today. That's a miracle, that God could paint those pictures. We can still look at it and understand it. The Holy Spirit guides us into these verses to pull out the picture of what God wants to communicate. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Father doting over his only son. The Holy Spirit is sent to get a bride, chaste virgin, who he purchases. He brings that person home to where the son is. And I'll end with this. Jesus told his disciples before he left, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. You know where the Holy Spirit, where we will be taken to? That place that he has been preparing. Isaac was out in the field and he looked up and he saw Rebekah coming. He'll see us coming. We're going to meet him in the clouds, the Bible says. Let's pray. Father, we pray that, the, that the, the images, the story, the words of your word, that they would be planted in our lives, that we, they would grow to fruition. Lord, help us each and every day to be more open to your word and that the word would be more open to us. Thank you, Father, for presenting us with such leadership in Pastor and Tiff, and we pray that you would guard, keep, and protect them with all diligence. Bless them with all spiritual 
and earthly blessings. We pray that you would keep them in every single thing that they do. Send the angels before them, that they would not dash their foot against the stone. In Jesus' name, amen.